You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, boys. Let me see your stubs for the double and double bill this week. Divis Lynch drives over a doing on mole on drive. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and this is all being recorded. And I am Mata Samat. Oh, I get it. It's like your name backwards. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, the, like the fun stuff. Yes. Like, very appropriate for the show tonight, uh, where, if you don't know, everybody, uh, this is your first episode. Uh, this is a Double-Edged Double Bill, where every week, Adam and I cover a randomly selected good and bad feature. Uh, we pick those at the end of every episode, so at the end of last week's episode, we end up picking uh, a good movie and a bad movie uh, related to our topic for this evening, which uh, we decided, you know, it's the, the end of the spooky season. It's a shame, Adam. We're, we're, we're coming up on Halloween here. It's such a bummer, but I know. But uh, we do usually like to cover, you know, amongst other things that we've done this particular month, a horror-themed director of some sort. And uh, we had our patrons, patreon.com slash gedbpod, vote between two choices of ours uh, for that. And uh, they end up between uh, Wes Craven and the ultimate winner, which is uh, David Lynch, which some uh, may argue he's not as much of a horror director. Would you argue that, Adam? Uh, I don't man. I'd say he's a definitely cerebral sort of horror director. Yeah, it because I mean you can't look at Eraserhead or even you know some of his other works and be like, oh, that's not horror. Like Eraserhead's horror. Like that's mm-hmm. a horror film. Yes, there's no question. And there's a lot of horrific elements in even both of the movies we're talking about tonight and Lost Highway and all those other ones. Like I, I consider him firm, maybe a toe. In the horror genre. Just stapling him to horror is just kind of like limiting Lynch in general, just because uh, Lynch is just like a whole genre in of himself. Like, people use Lynchian a lot as a term. It's really hard to, like, narrow down even, like, someone else doing something quote-unquote Lynchian. Like, there's obvious, like, surreal stuff, but even David Lynch is his own corner of being surreal. David Lynch is a one-of-a-kind guy. Like, yeah, there might be people who you know, idolize him or even use some of his tricks and things like that. But there's never been, or I'd argue probably ever will be someone quite like a David Lynch. 
Yeah, it's hard to really, like we mentioned, like really categorize them down. Um, but where was your first exposure to David Lynch? What was the first thing you remember at least seeing or becoming aware of David Lynch as like a as a talent? Like I I knew of Twin Peaks and obviously I knew of Dune and all that, but I didn't realize it was all like the same guy. I think the first time that I sort of went back and started watching David Lynch things was after I saw Lost Highway because I was like, what the fuck is this? And so I just sort of like, what else has this guy done? And sort of went backwards uh, from there. Yeah, I remember the exact moment because like Lynch was somebody who I was aware of just based on, you know, being someone who's aware of film at all. You come across people who talk about like David Lynch movies like, oh, they're weird. They're surreal. They're off the wall. And as a kid, I remember the first one I did ever watch was Eraserhead, but under unique circumstances where shortly after I got my wisdom teeth removed and I was really high off pain meds, I realized that Eraserhead was on like Hulu, I think, at that point. And I was like, you know, if there's ever going to be a good time to like be introduced, this isn't a bad time. And then even rewatching Eraserhead for the first time, honestly, since then, um, recently... It still is just fascinating because I, I, somebody said this, and I think it's really valid. Lynch isn't always, like, obviously very linear or has stories that you can really sparse in a traditional way. But for however, like, logically untrue he might be, all of his movies are really emotionally true. Like, he always describes his, like, thought process, oh, I had this feeling or this image in this dream or some of this other stuff. And when some people say that it can kind of come off as just pretentious, it never does with a Lynch. It just feels very earnest. And it feels like in a way like you're kind of sharing that emotion with him while watching certain movies of his. No, I definitely agree. And the other thing about David Lynch movies um, that I find rings true is whether, you know, it's a linear plot or you find it nonsensical or something like that. There's always part of it that you're able to project yourself into as well, like something that you can identify with, be it a character type or some kind of tragedy that might be happening on or just a general feeling of uneasiness you might have shared at one point. Uh, his movies are they're not so they're bizarre, but it's very easy to sort of identify with a lot of it. We'll test that with our one of our features tonight, because like I mentioned, we uh, ended up picking a good and a bad feature thing of our last episode for this one. Uh, and we ended up with, uh, for Adam had the two bad picks, and we ended up with Dune, which will be interesting given uh, when this episode's coming out. And uh, then we had my good pick, which was Mulholland Drive. So uh, first we'll go ahead and talk about our bad pick, Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown an incredible secret has been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. We have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Dune, a spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. So Dune came out uh, December 14th, 1984, from writer director David Lynch, obviously, uh, based on the novel by Frank Herbert, which, uh, if you're a longtime listener of the show, 
you might be where we've teased a lot the fact uh-huh. that uh Adam is a pretty huge fan of the original source material. And to be fair, it's a very popular novel, one of the highest selling novels of all time, ever since it was published in 1960. Um, but you've been very excited, especially we're recording this on the eve of uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune new adaptation coming out in theaters on HBO Max. Uh, and you're very excited for that. Uh, but go ahead. <laughs> but if we can't, Adam, let's go back, back, back uh-huh. before that was even a gleam in your eye to uh, your love of Dune, the original novel, and also, I guess, your first exposure to the Lynch adaptation. Okay. Uh, I came across Dune as a novel because I I had an uncle who was really, really into it, man. And, I mean, he loved the books, all of them, even the offshoots done by Herbert's son and things like that and the continuation. But it was particularly the first three novels. And he just let me read them one day. And and I found them a little bit confusing at first because I was young. I was probably 10 or 11, man. And they're like college thesis level as far as descriptions and things like that, especially particularly in the first book. But then the sci-fi miniseries came out starring like William Hurt. And then Children of Dune had like the first James McAvoy, I think that I remember seeing and things like that. But when those came out, I was fucking like hook, line and sinkered. I fell in love with the lore, the mythology, Messiah sort of allegories and things like that. Like I really, really sort of latched onto it. And because of that miniseries, I went back and watched the Lynch one. So I'm like, well, there's been a movie already too. Like I got to fucking see this. Like I knew it existed, but I wasn't familiar with it really. So I, I went back and watched it and I was kind of perplexed by just how fucking bizarre it really is. Like I know the source material is weird and it's like a sci-fi thing and it has to do with, like I said, Messiah allegories and things like that. But David Lynch's version is so fucking bizarre in the way it's executed that I find it almost impossible to watch as a fan of the source material. Well, that is interesting, because this is my only real exposure to Dune. Um, I, I watched this movie when I was just sort of like going through the Lynch catalog. And after coming off the high of some stuff like Blue Velvet or the Twin Peaks, like marathoning through that, Dune was always sort of the one that was like, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And when I was eventually kind of through like most of his other movies, I ended up upon Dune. And I was like, okay, I might as well. Let's just go ahead and watch this. And I similarly was very perplexed by it, um, but more of just like without any kind of exposure to the source material. It's a weird thing where they explain so much of it to you. Like the start of this movie is literally Virginia Madsen looking straight into the camera and explaining to you the tenets of this story. And then also right after that, there's a whole thing with a diagram about which planet is which and all this other stuff. And it's a weird thing where they're explaining so much to you but because so much is the sensory overload where as you're getting new information, the stuff that you just learned is getting dumped out for that new information. A hundred percent. And a lot of that has to do with the sort of non-stop inner monologues right. that happen in this. Oh my God, enough. <laughs> like, oh. And then, but the thing is too, yes, it is very over-explained. There is a lot to it, but then there's points in certain things that happen or terms that are used in the movie and everything that are completely unexplained. You have no idea what the fuck is going on. I mean, the biggest one I can think of even is his sister, Alia at the end, you know, he is the Kwisatz Haderach. Well, you have no idea what that is. 
in the context of this movie. I mean, you you do in terms of like that was said to you in another inner monologue, like at the very beginning of the movie. But like now, right. two hours later, you have to remember like, oh yeah, that was like some weird thing where they were trying to breed like superhumans, basically. Well, the, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Okay. So the Queen's Ex Hoderick is a Benny Gesserit legend, which the Benny Gesserits right. in the U.S. Dune are like the, they're basically like witch nuns type of thing. It's a sisterhood and they have powers and everything that they use because of the spice. So anyways, <laughs> the, the Queen's Ex Hoderick is going to be a man born of the Benny Gesserits. And right. Cause they only had daughters. That's like the big they thing. Only they only had, had daughters. daughters. Yes. Well, Duke Leto wanted a son, so who's Paul's the main character's father. So his mother went against protocol and gave him a son, and he's a, a full generation too early. The Quezox Hoderock was originally supposed to be Virginia Madsen's character Erlon and Sting's character Faith's son. That was going to be the Quezox Hoderock. Well, he became a, a generation too early, and they're completely unprepared of how to deal with him. Because if they would have had him as a child and they knew that he was planned to be this, then they could have sort of trained him and conditioned him and used him as a tool. Well, they get Paul, who is – that's why they call him the whirlwind because he's completely unpredictable. They have no idea how to – what to do with him. Everybody got that? Good. Yeah, you got that? A lot more if you want me to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just imagine like that thing that Adam just did but like – interspersed in like voiceover throughout the whole movie which apparently was a big thing they added like it wasn't just like Dino De Laurentiis who was the producer like just doing that demanding that on his own even Lynch agreed to like have that stuff like interspersed throughout the whole movie and it's just this weird thing where like it, I almost would wish that either they made this stuff a lot more clear in a way that felt like kind of human in a way that felt almost like like Dino De Laurentiis wanted to make his own Star Wars thing based on a very popular sci-fi novel so they ended up with this, and I almost wish, like, okay, either doll it out like Star Wars did, where, like, it feels natural and, like, you're only explain the stuff you really need, and otherwise the characters feel kind of human, or just go full, like, we're not explaining much of anything to you, and you just gotta go along for the ride. Going either way, I think, would have been the better option, as opposed to this weird in-between that I think just doesn't satisfy it's such a massive story and there are so many moving components and political intrigue and all this stuff in the source material that in order to make it one movie, like a two hour movie and everything, you'd have to sort of lose things. Not, and I hate to use the word dumb things down, but you'd have to, because if not, it's just way, way too much to try to shoehorn into this. That's why the miniseries worked. You know, it was, I think three, two hour blocks so all in all, it comes out to be a little over four and a half hours. I mean, and it, it works. It's enough to tell the story. That's why I think like the Denis Villeneuve one, if done correctly, and it is, they do get the chance to do the sequel, then that that's enough time. But to try to force it all into this and then also have David Lynch's sort of weird aesthetic and then also almost like Giger-like art design and all this stuff involved and these weird characters that like you have no idea really what's going it's just too much and it becomes lost because they do try to over explain it at the same time so like you said you almost like have a brain freeze by the end of the movie because like what the f what what is this now wait wait i know they told me this but like it's just, it becomes an overload on the senses Right, which is why, like, Lynch wasn't the first guy who attempted to make this novel. Like, infamously, there was Alejandro Jodorowsky's one, which I would recommend the documentary 
Jodorowsky's Dune. It's so fascinating with all the weird ideas. We're just like, yeah, we were going to have Orson Welles and Mick Jagger in the same movie. <laughs> we were going to make yep. this the weirdest fucking thing possible. And even Ridley Scott tried to do and tried to do kind of what Dillian Villeneuve ended up doing, where he's just like, I would have to make this into like several fucking movies that <laughs> were to try and make this work. And he might have been able to do that at the same time. But Lynch, I think you can tell there are points where Lynch's stuff comes through his style. And I think those are the most interesting moments of the movie where some of that like emotional truth I'm talking about kind of comes in. Like honestly, my favorite bits of this movie are when it's Kyle McLaughlin, Everett McGill, like on the sandworms and they just look at each other like, bro, we're on a sandworm and this cool. Like, fuck yeah, dude, we're on a sandworm in the green. <laughs> like I, I would watch a whole movie of that. And just like, fuck yeah, dudes being dudes on dunes. Right. Like check it out, bro. <laughs> 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 yeah that's fucking great man. and then you know and the other thing too that i do give this movie props for even though it looks bad but the use of the early early superimposed computer sort of effects were the suits you know when they're knife fighting and right the when they become minecraft characters yes a hundred percent i mean it looks ridiculous but still you know that was brand new technology at the time and that's the other thing about this movie too as crazy as this movie is a lot of the sets are gorgeous the costuming's pretty fucking legit the creature designs you know even though i hate the way some of them look they still look good like it's still done well it's just there's almost too many moving parts at once yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely agree that I think the the grandeur is really solid at the same time, that, like, you don't really get what's going on. You can still see, like, well, this is big. Like, you can really tell even the differences between um, there's the Atreides and then the Harkonnen. Like, I love even the way that, like, their actual different worlds look so different, where the Atreides are much more, like, regal, and you can tell by, like, how the sets look that it just feels like almost this, like, royalty, versus the Harkonnen are living this, like, desolate urban shitty setting that looks almost like if the fucking emerald city from wizard of oz became like a trash heap of a place you can tell like even just those things clue you in more than any of the over explanation does about like where we are with these people yeah right a hundred percent yeah yeah and you know not for nothing i like kyle mclaughlin a lot fuck is he boring in this movie and you got to follow him and then you got sean young who's boring in this movie that's the thing. Everybody in this is kind of bored, I'd say, except for the Harkonnens. They're all so over the top. Like yeah. The Baron and Sting and even um, the Beast Raban. Like, they're so over the top that they, they're the ones that are having fun. Everyone else feels like they're on a fucking Valium. I don't know. I would argue there's a few other people. Like, I would say I mentioned uh, Everett McGill, or especially Patrick Stewart is having as much like, yeah, fun Patrick being over Stewart's the top. way over the top. Yeah, <laughs> Everett McGill's, yeah, I, I always forget about him. And every time I see him, even like nowadays, you know, people under the stairs or under Siege 2 or S- Silver Bullet, I always forget that he was fucking Stilgar in the David Lynch Dune. Like, it's just so bizarre to me. Uh, Sting, Kenneth McMillan is the guy who plays the Baron, and Paul Smith, uh, who some might recognize as Bluto from Popeye, amongst other things, a big burly dude. Um, they are having the most fun, especially Sting, obviously, which is coming in with the underwear amazing entrance for anyone to have in a movie but also the way he says like i will kill him he was the thing that stuck out to me when i watched the first time i was so confused like sting is having so much fun with that kind of part even though how small it is or even like the the kevin mcmillan with the way he's just floating around i do love the effect of him floating around because you can't quite see the wires and it just feels like he is actually literally weightless in the middle of like this weird environment of course also another great thing about this movie is 
the hairstyling, particularly the variety of eyebrows in this movie. Like Brad Dorf's eyebrows. And then <laughs> I love that they give them the red lips and all this stuff. Like they just look ridiculous. They look so silly, but I, I, I'm kind of here for it. Because yeah. they're the Mentats. They're the Mentats. Well, oh, shit. Here we go. Hold <laughs> on to your butts. Okay. So, <laughs> like, Brad Dorr's character is considered a Mentat. What a Mentat is, they are human, but they've spent generations training their minds to be, like, living computers. So they're the, like, ultimate strategists or teachers or whatever you need them to be. They can adapt to any situation mentally. So, basically, they're just big nerds. <laughs> right, so I put slot A into port B, and then that gets me right. to get the IKEA thing together. Thank you. Okay, so you need these instructions okay. in order to like really make it all work. But but yeah, I just I feel like with you know like the the, the stuff like the eyebrows and all this other stuff, like you can see some of the Lynchian stuff. Like even the, the weird thing when there's in the middle of some of these exposition dumps, there's a lot of visual stuff that feels like Lynch. Like even the opening with Virginia Matson feels very much mm-hmm. like it could have come out of like the opening of Elephant Man, for example, which is like a straight-on headshot in the middle of space. Or there, there's stuff like the, the... Whenever we have those big montages, especially like it's like an hour and a half into this movie, we have the whole thing where Kyle MacLachlan meets up with Sean Young's people and becomes basically like the king of their people. And there's a long, elaborate montage about like, oh, and then Kyle MacLachlan's mother gave birth to his sister early and it turned out she had all the powers of the witches. And there's all those shots like the fetus... And all this other shit that looks bizarre and crazy, but feels like this is Lynch exercising his own weird habits. Yeah, 100%. And this movie, too, again, for a, a Dune fan, it, it reminds me of, like, I know it sounds crazy to compare it, but, like, Shyamalan's Last Airbender, to where every name is mispronounced. And it fucking drives me nuts. Because in the book, there's clear indication how to pronounce the names, too. Like, it's not... It's Harkonnen, not Harkonnen. It's not Chani, it's Chaney. You know, just it's silly things like that, but I'm still like, oh, just drills on the ears. And the other thing, too. All right. So you know how they call him Usul a lot in the movie? Yeah. Okay. Usul is a name that he is called only by Chani in the book. Stilgar gives it to him, but then once he takes on the name Moadib, then that's what he's referred to. Chani does call him Usul because it's like the term for like pillar of strength or something in their language. And they just, they just call him it so much in this movie that I hate. <laughs> well, well, you had you had a very damning comparison to like the last Airbender movie. Would you say it's like as offensive to you as a as a Dune fan to like bad at botching the source material? No, and, and there's a very specific reason why. This is the first adaptation. They didn't have 10 years of cartoons that were critically like applauded and loved by hundreds of millions of people around the world to sort of use as a guideline, uh, like The Last Airbender did. So no, I don't think it's that egregious or offensive. Yeah, plus at a certain point, like when the movie introduces you after like the big exposition dumps to the Emperor of the Universe, played by Academy Award winner Jose Ferrer, talking to a weird squirrel slug monster, Mm -hmm. you just gotta kind of like go with it, because he's going with it. (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) yeah, well that is the one thing about this movie, as much as I don't like it, simply based on that I'm a fan of the source material, I can still watch this. And it'd just be like, man, he fucking went for it. Like, I, I do, I gotta give credit where credit is due. That, like, they really tried. I can't discredit someone for really going for it and, and having sort of 
the best intentions. It might not have worked, but they tried. Yeah, and there still is fun stuff. Like, also, we haven't mentioned much of it, but I kind of fucking love the Toto score in this movie. It's dope! It's, it's really, it's fucking dope. It's, it's fucking great, dude. And Brian Eno's opening theme? Yes. It's great. It's really good. And also, all right, how weird does it seem Jurgen Proc now is, like, the good guy? Right, and, and his whole, like arc of sorts where he goes from just like I'm gonna be leading the spice mines to eventually like he has to commit suicide by biting into the poison tooth and destroying Brad Dorif's face. It's that that is accurate, though, to the source material. That definitely does happen. Um but yeah, dude, and there's a lot of like like you said the eyebrows too, but there is a lot of fucking like nice beards in this movie too. Yes. Like Georgia Procknow and fucking Ever McGill got like Great beards. Patrick Stewart's uh, balding mullet that he has by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah buddy. Or, or even just other just weird things. Like, I didn't notice until this time. There's just a pug that has, like, his own little journey throughout this movie where, like, he travels with the Atreides to uh, the, the Spice World. And then Patrick Stewart goes into battle with him later. And then at the big ending, one of the kids is holding him. Just like, that pug went through a lot. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that fucker. <laughs> It was like it was like Dunstan's big day out or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I want the cut that's just from the pug's perspective. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. This is the pug constantly trying to get table scrappings and shit. Um, <laughs> he meets the weird like slime monsters and other shit like that that pop up in this movie. The sandworms that show yeah. up. The sandworms also look great. Yeah, the sandworms. And, like, there's a lot of, like, stuff where you can clearly tell, like, okay, they're kind of running out of money. Like, this, that happened a lot in this movie, where, like, they would run out of money and the effects would get pretty cheap. Like, the bit where they go into the dunes and Kyle McLaughlin pulls out that weird, like, uh, tent pole thing. And there's clearly, like, a bad animated pump going in the middle. <laughs> and shit like that, where it's just, like, we ran out of money and we couldn't fucking, like, execute this that well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but you gotta figure, too, man, I, I know this movie went over our schedule as well, just because... Again, what the fuck? Like, it's such a massive idea and a massive story to try to shoehorn it, like I said, into a two-hour and plus, you know, a couple minutes and change movie uh, by David Lynch, a guy who has definitively his own ideas and voice, and from a studio head that really wants it done a certain way. It's just, of course, it's it's going to be a recipe for disaster. Well, it feels like this is one of the early examples of, like, Lynch at this time, this is only his third feature film, and he had gone from doing his short films to Eraserhead in 77, and then The Elephant Man in 1980, and then going to Dune after that point. It feels like the modern version where, like, you'll get somebody doing a small indie movie, and then they do a fucking huge-ass Marvel movie. Only, at this point, they didn't have the system that, like, a Marvel movie has into effect, where it's just like, yeah, you add some things, but we'll just do, like, pre big special effects sequences in here, as opposed to Lynch has to kind of just handle that all on his own and even like there's the great story of how he had been offered return of the jedi before this mm-hmm. by george lucas and just one of many mm-hmm. great interviews where he's just talking about i i just wanted to meet him even though i had no interest in doing it i just had to really meet george because i admired him so much and he just started talking about wookies and all this other stuff and i wanted to get the hell out of there it was torture for me says whatever the hell he wants he just and, but just you know just to talk about david lynch for just a second i mean that is the topic of the show he never comes across like sort of with vitriol or anything like that like he's just an honest guy yes like, he just says whatever the hell he's saying but he never means it to be really cruel or damning like he just i thought it was stupid 
Like, per- no, okay. Per- perfect example of this is there was a Q&A where somebody came up at a film school and was just like, I know a lot of people malign it, but um, I love Dune. Dune is my favorite movie of yours. It really made me want to make movies. I think it's such a tremendous underrated piece of art, and I really just wanted to thank you for making that. And he just said, I really appreciate that you like it, but I hated making Dune. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> just blatantly <laughs> doing that. Just killed that kid's dreams. <laughs> but it's but, a very nice one. Right, he said he is at the start, like, I appreciate that you like it. And I like certain parts of it. But also it was the worst experience of my life. It's the, I think he's, he calls it, like, the greatest sadness of his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. He called it the great sadness. That's how he referred to making Dune. The great sadness. That's awesome. Because <laughs> it's like you said, it feels honest. And there are moments in this movie where you can see some of that honesty peeking out. You can see, like I mentioned, like the Everett McGill and Colin McLaughlin kind of like smiling at each other. Even like bits where like the um, Alicia Witt as the little kid, uh, his little sister, is just kind of like smiling as she destroys the Harkonnen <laughs> and shit like that. There's a lot of fun bits and pieces in here where you can see the personality coming in. It just feels like at the same time, Lynch, he has to answer to so many masters at this point of like, oh, the original source material. And Dino De Laurentiis, one of the more infamous like hands-on producers out there and all these like big special effects rigs and all these actors it's a lot to juggle especially for someone who's made only three films this is his first big like hollywood production of any sort it's a lot yeah no kidding man because i mean it's like it's an epic sort of undertaking it just and even just in reigning in this giant cast and all the extras and everything. I mean, I can't imagine. Even though you like were hating on a comic Lachlan, I think there's still moments where he like really is trying to sell, especially given it's like his first big movie. I love the right. bits where he actually gets to say like the, um, the sleeper has awakened where it's just like, I don't really know what that means, but he's really right. selling it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, that that's, I guess what I was kind of saying too, you know, it's kind of the, kind of the problem like he's got this big moment you know where it's like yeah uh um uh, the sleeper has awakened and i am this blah, blah, blah. and as an audience you're like um what <laughs> what's going on I, i'm glad that he's into it but what how are you supposed to have a feeling about that if you literally don't really know what the fuck is going on? I mean, I think I had that more the first time at least I saw this and I was just more in a deep state of confusion as opposed to here. I'm able to pick up on the basic story enough that I'm like, okay, I'm willing to have fun with just like these details that don't quite make sense to me. I'm still able to embrace just like the sillier moments that still really work. Um, which is to say, I still would, this is a Lynch's weakest feature film. But at the same time, there still is enough like of that Lynch personality to make it work. If nothing else, I appreciate this movie so much for like being the movie that made David Lynch go on the path that he did after this. Because following this movie up with like a Blue Velvet is a mean statement of purpose of just like I'm not making anything attempting to be commercial again, like ever again. <laughs> and even like when you get to a Twin Peaks, that's like weirdly his most commercial thing because like that first season was so massively popular. But it is still just so distinctly David Lynch. And if anything. That's probably my weakest, like, in terms of, like, bigger project. His is the second season, in terms of how much they had to completely just serve the masters of, like, oh, you have to reveal who Laura Palmer's killer is, and all this other shit. And then after that, that second season of Twin Peaks gets so fucking rough. That that feels more like compromised vision to me than even a Doom. (laughs) No, I I completely agree with you. Uh, It's almost like, 
I would say, what, maybe a third into the second season where he's like, all right, fuck it. I'll give them what they want. Like, that's completely what it feels like. Yeah, it's like episode nine, they reveal that. And there's another 11 episodes until, like, the finale is really great. Like, the finale, finale episode where he just goes full back into, like, Lynch craziness. But there's, like, a solid nine to ten episode chunk of just, like, we don't know what we're doing. Because <laughs> we solved the fucking mystery that was supposed to get us through the whole series already. <laughs> right, 100%. Um, but I guess it's time we did our uh, final thoughts here on uh, David Lynch's version of Dune. Adam, your final thoughts on Dune. Look, I don't like the movie. I can never, I don't think I'll ever really like it. But like I said earlier, I can appreciate it for what it is and what it tried to do. As a fan of the source material and sort of like, I really know my shit when I'm talking about Dune. Like, I, I, I know what the hell I'm talking about. I know the character types. I know where the whole story goes, where everyone winds up. I don't know, Adam. You never indicated to us that you were a fan of the source material yeah. at all earlier in this discussion. I mean, yeah. it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> but anyways, I know I'm never going to be 100% satisfied. That's impossible. Uh, so I'm hoping the new one at least sates me. But this one, if you're a fan of the source material, I don't think this is the one to do it. So far, the miniseries has been fucking really spot on. But I'm hoping the movie's as far as like a big Hollywood production, even take it a step further. But if you're a David Lynch completionist or even like weird sci-fi movies and things like that, then you might enjoy this one. I don't know. I, I, I put too much stock into it, but I, I can see why people like this movie. Looking at it as a David Lynch fan, it definitely feels just like this is an interesting sidestep that isn't my favorite by any means. It's, it's like in the lower echelon. But at the same time, it, David Lynch has never made something where I don't see a bit of his personality still peek out. Even if it's like the lesser versions of like what I enjoy about him. With something like this, it at least feels like, okay, there's... If not David Lynch kind of like surreal stuff, there's big attempts at spectacle and also just so much exposition dumping that it just feels like, okay, this is a huge giant mess of a movie. But we've talked about plenty of like huge giant messes of movies. Few of them managed to feel at least this massive and this grand in scope, despite the fact that, you know, there's so much going against the director at that time, which I think is a real testament to Lynch that like he's still able to make this feel grand and epic despite being almost incomprehensible at points. You can still at the same time be sucked into individual sequences. Like, we didn't even talk about it much, but that whole sequence with the Gamjabar test is admittingly, it's this sequence where, like, I get the stakes of it immediately, and then I'm able to, like, really embrace the weird surreal images as he, like, puts his hand in and he feels fire and burning and all this other stuff. And then by the end of it, he pops out, just like, oh, look, it's fine. <laughs> and it's totally cool. Like, there are sequences like that where I get individual stakes, even if, like, the huge overall picture is uh, fuzzy. Like Brad Dorf's eyebrows, it's very, <laughs> very fuzzy. But before we get into our next feature, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Okay, promo for the Flopcast. Let's go. First, I need an adjective. Uh, naked. You need a noun. Wombat. Place. Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Number. Uh, 251. Okay then, the Flopcast is a naked podcast about cartoons, music, comics, movies, and wombats. Find us on the ESO network and flopcast.net. Go ahead and listen to it in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. <laughs> 251 times. Alright, now let's jump into our good feature, Mulholland Drive. I wonder where you were going. Mulholland Drive. That's where I was going. Mulholland Drive. 
a dream about this place. Tell me. There is no band, and yet, we hear a band. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Could be someone's missing, maybe. Should I'm thinking. Drive came out October 12th, 2001, and has a very interesting production history in its own right. This was originally conceived by Lynch in 1999 as a TV show, and he originally shot a lot of this as a pilot movie, and he had planned like a whole series of events that would happen later, and he gave it to the ABC executives, and they said, no, we're not going to do this, <laughs> which is after, keep in mind, Lynch had done um, both Twin Peaks, which obviously was like very huge in his first season, kind of like infamously sputtered out in the second, and also a weird sitcom about 30s radio programmers called On the Air that aired for three of its seven episodes, I believe. Um, so this was him trying to return to... Yeah, there's a reason you haven't heard of it before. Um, it's a very obscure thing <laughs> that most people are not aware of. Um, but this was him trying to return to TV. And when that ended up getting uh, scrapped by ABC, he uh, ended up filming some stuff afterward, uh, particularly in this movie. It has a lot to do with like the romantic relationship that occurs between the two characters, and then what ultimately happens after the blue box shows up. Um, a lot of that was what was shot later after the fact. And I was not even aware of that when I first saw this movie, that it was originally a TV pilot. Um, I'm curious, Adam, could you even see it at all as a TV show in any form? I mean... No, but let's put it this way. If it's, if it's only handled by David Lynch, then yeah, fuck it. It makes sense that this would be a David Lynch TV show, but it, it, it's, I don't know, man. Like it's fucking, I don't know. I don't know where you would go with this. Like it'd have to be like a one season. You couldn't get like a twin peaks out of this. I don't think. I mean, I would argue a lot of the stuff with the Justin Thoreau subplot, uh, with especially like the gangsters that or particularly like Michael J. Anderson from Twin Peaks in the weird like suit where that makes him look like um, a non-little person. I think there's a lot of that stuff where it feels like this could be dulled as a mystery potentially like like the, the fucking cowboy all that other shit. That feels like that could be a David Lynch Twin Peaks style like recurring thing where like, you aren't going to find out what it is but it's like the recurring antagonists that like are constantly underneath like Mulholland Drive as it were. I mean, sure, but I think it also depends on your interpretation and my interpretation of what the movie actually is about might vary. So there might be a reason why you could see it and the reason I can't. Are you saying there's no straightforward way to like think of this particular movie or many David Lynch movies? Adam? I'm telling you, I, I, I'm telling you, I, I can almost promise most people see a different type of thing when they watch this movie. No, yeah, it's. I mean, that's a big thing with this movie. This went like many David Lynch movies. Uh, this one came out and instantly sparked so much conversation. From at least what I can recall, like, even I remember I wasn't as cognizant of what who David Lynch was when this movie came out, but I was at least aware of like some of the imagery, particularly the poster and people talking about like, does it make any sense? What is this? What's going on? I could say oh, it would spark a lot of conversation, especially in the way that like Twin Peaks also did when it came out and some of these other things. But uh, Adam, speaking to that, um, 
maybe not less your interpretation, but uh, what are your thoughts on Mulholland Drive? Is it your favorite of Lynch's movies, or how, how do you feel about it? It's probably my favorite Lynch movie. Uh, it, it, it varies between this and Blue Velvet quite a bit. Um, but that Blue Velvet has, I mean, Blue Velvet's amazing, but it's also, I'm a huge Dennis Hopper fan. To me, this is like, if you're trying to explain to someone or you want to show someone a David Lynch movie that is purely like, this is what a David Lynch movie is, it would be this movie. To where there's mysteries upon mysteries and weird sort of double meaning behind everything and this weird duality to, to most characters. And and just, it's so wonderfully acted pretty much across the board. It's 100% my favorite Naomi Watts like ever. She's fucking phenomenal in this movie. But I love the score, the cinematography, the weird characters that show up, particularly the cowboy, the scamp character behind the behind the diner. Uh, it's just there's so much weird symbology in this movie, but it, it's just at its core, just a movie about how Hollywood fucks actresses over and how. It's just when we're done with them, we're done with them. And that's, I mean, even talking about the general public for the most part, too. And it's just what, at least in my opinion, what these women go through and what sort of the fantasies they create to keep themselves alive or keep themselves sort of sane in a weird way. It's just, yeah, I think this movie is kind of perfect. I, I, I've never given it a perfect score, um, and I don't know why, but I can't. But it's it, it's pretty perfect. Yeah, I would say it's my favorite of Lynch's movies. Nothing else because it, it kind of speaks to what I talked about earlier. Where like Lynch's movies have this sort of emotional truth to them that you can find. And I find so much emotional truth in this movie. Where like I haven't been in every individual experience that's going on in this movie, but at the same time, I feel so much of like the individual moments so much. Like particularly so much of the stuff where the characters are talking about, oh, hey, there's this dream I had, or there's this feeling that I have. In other places, I could feel, like, so stilted in a way that feels like like you're kind of taken out of the experience. Versus this movie, I think, has so many stellar examples, like, particularly the big uh, early moment that I think signifies this movie as a horror movie at the Winkies Diner, which is, like, the moments also become, like, a meme and all this other stuff. Uh, with, I believe, the actor's uh, Patrick Fleischer... I believe, who's, like, a great character actor. Yeah, Patrick Fleischer. And this whole experience of just, like, talking about, like, oh, you know what, it feels dumb, but I had a dream about this place, and you were there, and I was going through all this, you know, these specific details, and then eventually getting to the moment where you see Bonnie Aarons' character behind the dumpster is one of the best jump scares in cinematic history. It is such a terrifying little isolated set piece in its own right. It's just a great example of, like, surreal filmmaking in the way where, like, it, it's, it's a horror sequence, but also it has, like, the Hitchcock suspense thing of, like, you know what's going to happen. Like, you're aware that, like, there's a bomb underneath the table, to quote the Hitchcock thing. And here, it's just like, yeah, you know that he's going to get up, and he's going to go over to the dumpster, and the monster's going to pop up, but you you are not prepared at all for what that thing looks like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, completely. It's it's absolutely terrifying. What also makes it super effective is sort of the um, lack of sound that happens. Like, you don't hear him scream, you don't hear anything, he just faints. And you don't get really any outside noise. Or it, it, It's fucking terrifying. And all Bonnie Aarons does is, like, she pops up from behind the dumpster, he falls over, and then she 
goes back over into the dumpster. Like, there's, she's not doing anything. It's not even, like, jumping out and scaring you. It just, she is just there, like, hi, bye. Right. <laughs> no, her cackling or smiling, nothing. She pops out, like, hey, what's up? Yeah, I'm back here. Oh, okay. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, all right. Back to these day-old bagels. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that horror is, like, so perfect to Lynch, where, like, the things that are terrifying in a Lynch movie are just things that, like, have always existed. Like, there are things that, like, have always been there, are always, like, underneath the surface that you didn't quite see before, and they're just chilling. Like, they're not trying to, like, get you, they're not trying to, like, horribly mutilate you, they're there. And they'll just find you eventually. They'll get to you. They're just gonna be kind of casual about it. Sure, yeah, well, yeah, the horror in that moment to at least the Fleischer character. I mean, obviously he's had recurring dreams or whatever, but it's almost like a class system horror too, you know, where there are these sort of Hollywood guys and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this seedy underbelly. They want to pretend doesn't exist. And instead of them being sympathetic to its needs, it's terrifying. Yeah. By the way, I'm sorry. His name is Patrick Fischler. Not Fleischer. Fleischer. Paul Fleischer. Is Paul Fleischer the guy from Demon Knight? Uh, no, that's Charles Fleischer. But, but I mean, there's there's a bunch of other people that pop up in this cast. Like, uh, people only show up for even, like, one scene. Like, Robert Forrester shows up at the very beginning when, like, the big car crash happens. Um, or James Karen from, like, Poltergeist and Return of the Living Dead is, like, the very supportive yep. dude at the audition. Dan Hedaya is upsetting in this movie <laughs> when he shows up. Well, Melissa George. Yes. And, yeah, she's great in it. But, yeah, yeah, Dan Hedaya. Fuck. Good God. But yeah, no, it's a fucking amazing cast. I mean, every, you know, like I said, Naomi Watts, Laura Herring, Justin Thoreau. Uh, it, it's just, well, those are basically our three main leads. But yeah, the, everybody's great in it. And they all fit into this weird Lynchian story he's trying to tell. Like, they're all perfectly cast for these parts. I wouldn't want to see anybody else take on these roles. Well, one of my favorite examples is, like, Lee Grant's character who's the lady that pops up and she's telling like something's wrong at Naomi Watts's door. It's just like some random woman who's like walking around the apartment complex trying to get like somebody out of her apartment. She's so terrifying. And she just like shows up and you, because there's no context. It feels like really you are in the middle of a dream that just like you, nobody is like quite evil. It's not like the dream thing where it's like, Oh, I'm falling or any typical things you see yeah. in like dream sequences. It's just a thing where it's like, you are in the middle of a situation that could be normal or like that could be in reality, but you're missing one bit of context. That's crucial. Yeah. There's just a real surreality to it. Like everything is just off by just a hairpin. Everything's just a little off. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And uh, my favorite sort of, character that pops in is the cowboy i love the cowboy he's mm -hmm. terrifying yes he's terrifying and it's just what a weird again and i hate to use the term but the lynchian character like who is this fucking guy he looks so out of place compared to everything else but he's just sort of represents the oncoming consequences in doom well, especially because, like, he's dressed up, at least, as the epitome of, like, masculinity, especially in Hollywood. Because, like, he looks yep. like, oh, he could have been in, like, a, a John Ford movie or something like that. Yep. But he just comes in and it's just like, you're going to cast that girl. You can do whatever else you want, but she has to be the one that you cast. Why? I don't know, dude, but they'll completely fuck you over. They'll <laughs> ruin your life and your bank account will be gone. Um, and also, Billy Ray Cyrus will be fucking your wife, which is also another yeah! <laughs> show. Billy Cyrus is the pool boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. When I rewatched it, I went, 
Holy fuck, I completely forgot. I mean, he's there all it and all. It's great. <laughs> and just the way he also delivers, just like, look, it's better if you just left here and completely forgot about this. And he actually shows concern when his wife's like super pissed off, like, what the fuck's he doing? Like, he's probably just upset. I mean, I would be too. <laughs> <laughs> yup. I'm very curious. You don't have to totally get into it because it'll be like a fucking thesis, much like how I stopped myself doing for Dune because I really could have gone. But what what ultimately do you think is happening in this film? The more I've watched it, the more I do kind of resign myself to like, I don't think anyone can ever quite know the exact details. But my vague idea for what it is is basically that like Naomi Watts' character, I believe like the main person is Diane. And who is the later persona that shows up? Everything we see with Betty is either like some sort of complete fantasy about her previous life when she first got to Hollywood or is a bit maybe closer to reality than we even like are made aware or any of these other things. Basically, like what we see throughout most of the movie is her idealized thing of like, oh, my relationship with the Camila character was like this great vibrant thing. We like met each other in the middle of interesting circumstances. It felt like an old noir movie. And we were in the middle of like, we were like skinny schoolgirls coming together and realizing what we like naturally were. And she's just like so wrapped up in this fantasy that when she even gets like the whole reminder of like who Diane is, it's this like sort of like reality intrusing in. It's basically just like, it's, you know, given the big scene Naomi Watts has later in the movie, most of it is like this big masturbatory kind of like fantasy slash rose-colored glasses version of her past compared to, like, what her reality is, which is a sad, depressing existence that we see later on. Uh, yeah, I, I basically 100% agree. <laughs> yeah, what he said. <laughs> no, I, I do. No, I think it's, yeah. it's ultimately Diane in almost like a drug-induced fantasy, if you want to call it that, of ultimately her projections of what she wishes could have happened and then sort of the guilt paranoia and fear of what she's ultimately done by hiring sort of the hitman and all that stuff sort of projecting in and, and certain times like the, I, I took it like the scene with the scamp and things like that are almost like where her sort of subconscious is trying to wake her up and snap her back into reality. Right. Where she'll then just say, Oh, there goes gravity. Of course. Yes. Right. That's what, yeah. yeah, yeah. But ultimately, you know, opening, the opening of the box is causes everything to crash down and her to sort of wake up. Yes, I, I, I can see that. But I've seen other interpretations that are also interesting, like the idea that Diane and Betty are actually two separate characters and they kind of like merge together in like parallel universes, basically. Like this is like the folding together of two different parallel universes that are similar, but just different enough to where everything just eventually explodes by the time we get some of these surreal elements. It's because it's just like kind of like reality caving in on itself. I've heard that interpretation. I've heard even the interpretation that like the earlier thing is like the movie that they were both auditioning for and then it contrasts with like our actual reality. There's so many different ways you can interpret so much of this movie and I think that's kind of why it works so geniusly but at the same time even if you just take it at face value it's a fascinating surreal bizarre ride that you're just immediately hooked into. I mean, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, agree to disagree. Um, <laughs> well, that, but again, that's the thing. And, and even Lynch went on, you know, has said that he wants every sort of viewer to take their own interpretation of this movie, and we're all right. And it, whatever mm-hmm. your opinion is of what's happening, if it works for you, then that's what happened. 
that's fucking a really bold sort of statement and choice to make, but I, I, I like it. I do also love how he'll occasionally just say certain things where, like, he'll indicate what his own personal perspective on a movie is. Like, another great interview clip where he's talking about, like, uh, you know, people don't really see it, but uh, I believe Eraserhead is my most religious film. And the interviewer's like, do you want to elaborate on that? No. No, I don't. Yep. No. <laughs> yep. No. Not at all. What's a Wookiee? <laughs> but and I think it's also interesting because like finding out about like back like behind the scenes stuff from people who've worked with Lynch is fascinating where like Naomi Watts like there's a great interview on the Blu-ray Criterion Edition Blu-ray that I have. <laughs> we haven't done it in a while yes quite yeah. yes. Um, where she just talked about the fact and people have also said this like other actors the way Lynch casts is he just has people come in and has a sit down conversation with them for like an hour Nothing to do with, like, your process, your method, or whatever other stuff. It's just, like, a back and forth of just two people genuinely having conversation. And then he's just like, okay, it was nice. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you later. And then within, like, a couple of days, he's just like, yeah, you have the part. <laughs> like, that's what his casting is. I think that's really indicative of the movies where, like, it's not so much about, like, oh, what's the individual character motivation and backstory and all this other stuff. It's about just, like, can you be, like, a real authentic person in the middle of his weird situations? Right. I, yeah, I completely agree. And that's sort of what I was alluding to earlier. They, everybody that he casts, particularly in this movie, they all feel genuine in sort of this crazy, hyper-realized, bizarre, nightmare fantasy of Hollywood. Like, it, it just, everybody's there to, like, how do I put it, man? It, fucking, like, Justin Throw. He, well, it's J.J. Abrams, but he... Um, <laughs> he's, he's very much J.J. Abrams in this movie. <laughs> But uh, he, he, even he, like, when he goes, like, over the top with the golf club and all that, like, he feels like this real sort of pretentious director. It doesn't feel over the top. He feels like this guy who's like, oh, dare you challenge my vision and all this shit. Like, it, it, it feels legit in this crazy sort of world that we are got to be on board for. Well, even down to, like, the way that he responds to his wife cheating on him is the a way that feels so specific of just, like, I'm going to take your jewelry and cover it in pink paint that we somehow have in our garage. Like, <laughs> no one else would react like that, but it makes sense for, like, I totally believe that his character would do something that specific to, like, really hurt her in this way. Like, I think that's the thing is, like, Lynch really knows how to, like, make that stuff work. And at the same time, like, what you're talking about, like, all the stuff, I, I agree is very much there about... Like, oh, actress being, like, torn down by Hollywood and just kind of, like, left to the side. I think all that's there, but at the same time, Lynch doesn't also shy away from, like, what he loves about old Hollywood, particularly, like, 50s-era cinema. Like, you can see that with, like, the big, like, 16 Reasons Why sequence or some of these other things. Like, he does have value in that facade. He does think, like, there's some kind of value and interest in, like, that kitsch of that particular era. But at the same time, there is always this, like, underbelly. Like, he always kind of feels like there's a light and dark element to like every single aspect of like Hollywood in this case or various other things like suburbia and blue velvet, all these other things. Like there's always like an inherent beauty that might be a bit false, but is engaging and unique, but also a real dark seedy underbelly that we don't want to really acknowledge at the same time. Oh no, I definitely, yeah, of course. And I mean, watching this movie, do you think David Lynch is a fan of sunset Boulevard? I don't don't know. You think? I don't know. Just waiting for Naomi to say, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Lynch. I mean, but it absolutely is that, you know. Yeah. She's become so disenfranchised that she's projected her own fantasy. I mean, even the car from Sunset Boulevard is in a scene of the movie and everything. Like, it's, yeah, he clearly loves old Hollywood, but he clearly also 
understands the hypocrisy of Hollywood in general. And I think that's kind of what you're getting in this movie. Right. Even down to like the Laura Elena Herring character, who we haven't talked about that much, who I think is also great in the movie. Um, she has like so many moments of like, oh, I completely forgotten my own identity. How am I going to like accomplish that? Oh, I'm going to do stuff like uh, take the name of Rita Hayworth, or I'm going to basically pull a vertigo where I disguise myself <laughs> to look like some other completely different person. Like there's, there's so much of like people kind of trying to find themselves in Hollywood and ultimately like sort of taking things from pop culture in a way where sometimes it's like, Oh, this is something that like really helps like motivate me to be a completely new and reinvent myself. And other times where it's like, Oh, but this is all like fake and this is a giant facade and I can't really like be myself. I have nothing. So I just kind of glean things from pop culture at the same time. There's a real uh, yin and yang to it. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the the allegory of the whole film. You know, it's just do you do you like stay genuine or do you fake it so you can make it? And ultimately, you know, faking it till you make it, where you become a shell of yourself or just a sort of carbon copy of what's out there or what's been done already. It's a hollow existence, right? And you just kind of like have to live in the bit that you've basically made for yourself after a certain mm-hmm. point or die in it eventually as you're being chased down by uh, the figments of people who wanted you to make it on the big screen, uh, by the right. end, which is also another terrifying thing, which is like, oh, this happy old couple we saw before have become like little demon monsters that grow to human size and chase you down to your death. Um, it's, it's also very unsettling there. But also there's even stuff like one of my favorite shots in this whole movie is the bit where they go to the Silencio Club and the, like, almost Sam Raimi-style, like, shot all the way over to the door is unsettling. And then you get in there, and Silencio is, like, a weird, terrifying place. But at the same time, there's a real beauty when, like, the um, uh, Rebecca Del Rio performance starts of, like, crying. It's one of those weird things where, once again, it's like, this is a place that feels like it's out of a nightmare, and I'm upset, and I don't know what's going on. But you can still find beauty in the middle of that. Yeah, absolutely. And just the na- the fact that his name's Silencio. It's just so fucking David Lynch. Used club named Silence. Yes, that's true. But Adam, we could go on for a while, and we have already on Mulholland Drive. So when we go into final thoughts, your final thoughts on Mulholland Drive? It's a beautiful movie, man. It's it's disturbing. It's makes you question a lot of things, especially what you're watching. Um, it's populated by just amazing performances, great camera work. Uh, it's just, it's David Lynch at his best in, in sort of film form. Like I'd argue the best David Lynch is to me, probably the first season of twin peaks. Um, but as far as film form, I, I don't think you get any better than this. I think it's perfect sort of what the fuck is this movie, but God, I get it somehow. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's a great, great mind bender of a film. Yeah, I mean, it switches tone all the time. Like, we didn't even talk about stuff like the Hitman sequence, which is a big, elaborate sort of slapstick moment. Happens within the same runtime as something like Naomi Watts having that big, tragic, masturbatory sequence, where she's just, like, trying to look back and remember, like, a beautiful time where she had this relationship with this woman, and it's completely dissipated and fallen apart at the same time. Like, you get so many different, like, feelings over the course of it, but it's like a two-and-a-half-hour movie that never feels like two-and-a-half hours, 
it's just this beautiful ride that I agree. I think this is my favorite, like, David Lynch thing in general. I think it's because it's, like, the best example of what it is to be, like, emotionally true, even if you don't understand every single detail. At the same time, it has so much of that great mix of, like, the horrific, monstrous ugliness of, like, film and the beauty that can be inherent with being cinematic at the same time. There's so much, like, push and pull, and I agree, like, all sorts of great performances. Naomi Watts is so great, and it's such a bummer that her career has turned into movies that'll come out at film festivals briefly and get a bit of Oscar buzz and then just get kind of dumped to, like, straight to VOD <laughs> kind of thing. It, that's basically her career at this point. It's a bummer, because she's such a talented actress, and particularly in this movie, as she's able to go from, like, this wide-eyed, beautiful, like, just girl right off the plane, just like, I can't wait to make it in Hollywood to the completely embittered and tragic woman by the end of it. It's such a stunning, like, display of her range as an actress. And the range of, like, everybody else here as actors, for sure. Um, yeah, Mulholland Drive, definitely a, a great example of surreal cinema. I like Naomi Watts, too, but what was that one fucking movie we watched with the little kid from It? Oh, oh Book of Henry, yes. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Okay, well, a little bit of black in her ledger because of that movie. There, fair, there's, a, there's, there's, there's a, a fair amount of black in her ledger. There's, there's a, a few uh, bon, Bonnie Aaron's homeless monster people in her ledger. Yeah. I would say, which yeah, like we've been talking a lot about Bonnie Aaron's recently from last week and all this <laughs> stuff. One of the great suit actresses of our time. I agree. But anyway, anyway, here is a message from the ESO show that we fully endorse. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. All right, so now it's time for the Double Redo, which is a weekly segment where every time uh, we pop up here and uh, Adam and I uh, program the best and worst possible double feature based around the topic uh, to complement the episode. So uh, we'll tell you each uh, two good and two bad movies related to, in this case, David Lynch. Though keep in mind, given Lynch's limited filmography, uh, we decided to expand this a bit. Um, to include some non-feature film material of Lynch's, so like short films, TV projects, music videos, and all sorts of other stuff, uh, especially for the bad. There's not a lot of bad in terms of the feature films. But uh, Adam, why don't you go ahead and, and talk about your choices? Alrighty. So for the good, I have the already mentioned uh, Eraserhead. If you're a David Lynch fan and you haven't seen Eraserhead, then what the fuck are you doing? Like, it, it's sort of the blueprint of what would come next. Eraserhead is just a weird fucking fever dream horror film that it, it's almost defies, uh, you know, someone being able to explain it. it. It's just creepy and unnerving and, you know, shot in stark black and white. And it, I, I kind of love it. It fucked me up when I first saw it. Like I was really disturbed by it. Um, I can watch it now and appreciate it more from sort of the, I don't want to sound pretentious, but the artistic merits of it. Like I said, if you haven't seen Eraserhead yet and you're a David Lynch fan or even a fan of just weird, bizarre cinema, uh, you got to see it. It, it. it holds its place sort of in, in film discussion for a reason. It is that good and that weird. 
And then my other one, I have a David Lynch uh, produced film that was actually directed by uh, Werner Herzog based on uh, sort of like a true crime event. It's called My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? Fucking just a brief synopsis. This guy who is a theater actor murders his mother and you're trying to figure out why through the whole movie and it's a great cast the lead guy is michael shannon but willem dafoe's in here brad dorf's in here it's it's a really really dark tale into the psychosis of one man and, and sort of what set him over the edge uh not a lot of people have seen it i did have some festival play in a very limited release um but i think it's it's a really good movie it's a little bit of a slow burn uh, it's, Werner Herzog, but I really, really do enjoy it. Um, and then for the bad, I have uh, that Netflix fucking thing with him and the monkey. What did Jack do? The thing is, is David Lynch, so he kind of can do whatever he wants and gets away with it. But I, I watch it, and then I got no nothing out of it. I thought it was just kind of a waste of time all around. I, I found it very sort of boring and just not even kitschy or funny on an absurd level. I just thought it missed the mark all around for me. I know there are a lot of people who hate it. There are some people who like it to me. I, I fall firmly in the hate it sort of category. And then the other one I have, which is to me, one of the oddest choices he decided to do and, and stuck with it, I think for the entirety of its three to four season run um, where David Lynch played Gus but it might have actually been David Lynch, the bartender in the Cleveland show, the Seth MacFarlane show. Very weird, because, I mean, it looked just like David Lynch. It was obviously David Lynch's voice. I mean, I just, it, it perplexes me that he would tie himself to something like that. The paycheck must have been great. Because uh, it's, it's a terrible show. I mean, it's Seth MacFarlane shit. It's full of racist and homophobic stuff. And it's, it's, it's no good. And I, again, I just, don't understand why David Lynch was even a part of it and for as long as he was. Yeah, the Cleveland show. Remember when that was the thing, guys? That was that was the thing that existed on airwaves for about three or so seasons. Yeah, um, I watched a bit of the Cleveland show because there was a point where I did watch Seth MacFarlane stuff. I probably stopped around the time of like the Cleveland show. And I think that was just a weird example of kind of like, MacFarlane does that in his other shows where like on Family Guy it was Adam West popping up as the mayor or Patrick Stewart popping up as like the lead CIA guy in American Dad, which is like, let's get a recognizable actor to play this weird, goofy part that shows up like once every couple episodes, basically. Sometimes that would be kind of funny with like an Adam West in particular on the Family Guy, but with like the Cleveland Show one, it felt like it was just like that show in general, like a copy of a copy of a copy. I didn't see the what did Jack do thing until right actually before we recorded the show, just because like I never actually watched the whole 17 minute short and, you know, I'll talk about this with my bad choices, but David Lynch in short bursts feels less, like, authentic in the way we're talking about in earnest, and more of, like, he might be earnestly trolling us. Like, in short form, it feels almost like he wants to toss us off as, like, a fun little experiment just to kind of put that out there in the ether, and even, especially with, like, this it was originally, like, it was an art exhibit thing that he put out, and then Netflix, for some reason, picked it up. I guess just to have something for people to talk about in the middle of January of last year, <laughs> I guess. Um, it's at least fascinating. I can give it that uh, for, for what it is, especially with the the effect I can never get over of the, the thing with the mouse superimposed over the image, which I know mostly from like the late night with Conan O'Brien satellite TV thing, whenever they would do those interviews. 
but a lot of people might know it as like the old TV show was like Clutch Cargo, right? Uh, yeah, I believe that's accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clutch right. Cargo. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. So there's there's kind of like interesting fun to that, but even at like 17 minutes, it feels like okay, I get it. The bit's a bit overdone <laughs> with that. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I recently watched Eraser Head, and I grew to appreciate the movie even a lot more especially as sort of a movie about like lynch facing parenthood even though the movie was done over like a seven year period or so it definitely feels like it's a movie about like a guy having to face the responsibility of being a parent and just the nightmarish terror of like having to care for something that's completely innocent and the, the baby in that movie is still just like one of the most horrific little creatures I've ever seen what the fuck and it's so simple but it looks like it's like a shaved lamb with no limbs basically yeah, 100%. Yeah, oh god. I don't like it. Right. <laughs> I get that. Um, and I have not seen uh, My Son, My Son, What Have You Done, but I know he was a producer. And uh, I'd heard that was uh, pretty solid, but just, yeah, I'd never seen it, so I'm going to have to put that on the old watch list on the letterbox the kids talk about. The kids love Letterboxd, and the kids love Werner Herzog. <laughs> I mean, look, he's on The Mandalorian. He's everyone's favorite character. Yep, 100%. <laughs> I want to see the baby. <laughs> your honor, your code prevents you. This is wonderful to me. Yeah, we're in Herzog. Yeah. Okay, you know what? Get David Lynch in season three of The Mandalorian. Do it, cowards. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mando. You got blasters on that armor? Let's kill some Wookiees. I sent you a message on your phone, Lando. Oh, let me look at it. Don't look at it on your fucking phone. <laughs> <laughs> Which is shout out a reference to. There's a great video of him talking about watching movies on your iPhone. It's one of my favorite internet videos ever. It's it's so great if you have not seen that. But now it's time for me to do my choices, Adam. And uh, I also have some interesting ones uh, for my two good. I'll start off with uh, the first good one I have is weirdly a movie that feels the least surreal of Lynch's movies, but he's called it his most experimental film, which is interesting. It's a film from 1999 called The Straight Story, which is based on a true story. Uh, about this man named Alvin Street, who was this man that in real life, he crossed multiple state lines while on a riding lawnmower to see his brother. He didn't have a car or anything, so he drove with a tractor trailer thing behind, like hitched to the fucking lawnmower across several states and was sort of like a big news story at that point. It was sort of this like cultural piece about like, oh, he's this guy who's traveling across state lines. Isn't that fun? And in lesser hands, you could feel kind of like, oh, it's a sweet, kitschy story. But in Lynch's hands, it becomes this really fascinating meditation on aging and how it just really can sap the life out of a person, but you can still find beauty in interacting with various people. It's a great road movie for that. It's like so beautifully shot. There's a lot of like phenomenal moments, especially with Richard Farnsworth, who is a character actor slash stuntman who worked in Hollywood for decades. And you might recognize as the sheriff from Misery, the sweet hometown sheriff who ends up getting horribly blown apart at the end of that movie. Um, but this was his last big role, and a, a really sad element of it is the fact that he was actually dying from, I believe, colon cancer at that time. And he has, like, in the movie, his character actually has, like, this thing where he'll, he'll like, fall over, and he's using two canes, and he can't really move that much. And it was all based in truth about Richard Farnsworth at that point. And he got nominated for an Oscar for it, and it's an astonishing performance, and it's also a bit of a tragedy given he died, like, within a year after that. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful little movie that it's also, um, it's David Lynch's Disney movie, 
It's on Disney Plus right now. You could watch The Mandalorian and then go over to The Straight Story. And it's a rated G movie. And there's, like, this weird thing where you constantly feel like, is there going to be some sort of, like, horrific David Lynch thing happening? And just, like, all, like, the real wholesome stuff you would get in, like, a David Lynch project without any of, like, the horrific, surreal, weird stuff in it. So it just ends up making you feel kind of, like, sweet and kind of charmed by how off and quirky it is. Um, It's a really special little movie that I think has gotten lost in its filmography. The other good pick I have is uh, Twin Peaks The Return, which some people have debated like, oh, it's a 17-hour fucking movie or whatever. I won't go that far, but I want to say that, one, I think that's my favorite season of Twin Peaks. I love the first season a lot, and season two, as I mentioned, is very weird and odd, but Twin Peaks The Return, that third season, is such, I think, a stellar example of television, particularly I want to spotlight episode eight, which it's hard to like really synopsize an episode but it has like i think the best mixture of of that particular season where like the first half of it is very much like continuing the story like despite how surreal it all gets you still have like a weird story that's going on throughout all this and in this case it has a lot to do with like the evil sort of doppelganger of the comic lachlan character he plays several different roles in this season and follows a lot of him and I guess, like, coming across evil in Twin Peaks in the form of, like, these sort of monstrous creatures that show up that are humanoid. Second half is sort of the origin story of those creatures, how it ties into kind of, like, like nuclear bomb testing and stuff like that in the Twin Peaks area. I'm, I'm not hesitating when I say some of the best television I've ever seen is, like, the second half of that episode with the flashback stuff, where it's this weird, upsetting black-and-white horror movie that has, like, so many unsettling moments, particularly if you... Anybody out there would know it as the Got a Light episode of the show, which, like, that whole second half is one of my just favorite, like, horror movies in recent years, is that entire second half of that episode. It's astonishing that I would recommend watching the whole series alone just to get to that fucking episode. Uh, it's it's such an astonishing achievement. And also, in the middle of it, to, like, separate those two things, uh, there's a performance by Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Because throughout the series, that particular season at least, they would have like performances by certain bands. And in that episode, it's fucking Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails doing like a really awesome song in the middle of like a club that happens. Um, it's, it's a really great, it's my favorite episode of that show in general, and particularly that season. Uh, and then quickly, just my two bads are short things that, like I mentioned earlier with when we were talking about the What Did Jack Do segment uh, from Netflix, um, just feel like kind of David Lynch trolling everybody. Uh, one is a short called Pierre and Sonny Jim, which is a three and a half minute short that involves uh, two little stick figures that have clothes on and their heads are like blown up surgical gloves and they spend the whole short not saying anything but making horrible obnoxious squeaking noises for that whole three and a half minutes until they both like fall out of frame. Uh, that's the whole short. And it's, uh, it's a waste of at least a small amount of time, uh, but it's a great example to me of, like, this is what it feels like when I hear somebody say, like, oh, I hate a David Lynch thing. I imagine this is what they see it as. It's just, like, this three-and-a-half-minute short for, like, feature length. If, they, if you hate a David Lynch movie, it's basically just, like, this short extended to feature length, I would feel. And in a similar way, I have that with Crazy Clown Time which is a music video that he did when he released an album back in, like, 2013. He released an album, and he made, in this case, a music video for it. And the music video is literally, like, set to this song that admittedly has great, like, instrumentation. There's, like, a great sort of, like, beat that reminds me a lot of, like, the great Twin Peaks music from, like, Angelo Badalamente, who's this recurring, like, composer. Um, But 
over it, he is like saying in a really high pitched voice all the stuff that's going on on the screen, which is basically a bunch of people in a backyard doing nonsensical things. And he's talking about like, Janie had a red shirt in that voice. And he does that throughout the entire like seven minute music video. And stuff like, does somebody want their head on fire? And all this other stuff. It's a stream of consciousness. Like, once again, like, this is what it feels like viewing, like, a David Lynch movie from the perspective of someone who loathes a David Lynch movie. That's what both those shorts really feel like to me. Okay. I can honestly say I have not seen uh, any of those. Not a single thing. I've never seen The Straight Story. Uh, I know what it is, though. Uh, probably because of Disney Plus, or maybe like I like Harry Dean Stanton, so it might have come up through that. I never got around to seeing the Twin Peaks return. I wasn't able to because uh, I just didn't have the channel. Uh, but I really do want to see it. And Pierre and Sonny Jim and Crazy Clown Time sound like uh, the worst shit ever. <laughs> so to be honest, I will not be seeking either of those out. Well, I mean, to be fair, if you do, uh, you would only waste about a total of ten minutes of your time. But those are That's, 10 precious minutes. That's 10 precious minutes, baby. <laughs> um, I, I'd be curious, though, to have you especially see Twin Peaks The Return. So yeah, before we get to the close of the show, let's go ahead and repeat our titles here. Adam, repeat the titles that you suggested. Okay, so for my good, I had Eraserhead, and my son, my son, what have ye done? And for my bad, I had What Did Jack Do? and The Cleveland Show. And then uh, my two good choices were The Straight Story... And then Twin Peaks Season 3, also known as Twin Peaks The Return, specifically Part 8. And then my two bad choices were Pierre and Sonny Jim. And then Crazy Clown Time, the music video. But now it's time uh, we start doing our exit and getting out of here. Uh, Though we're going to be picking our movies for next week at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Uh, In the meantime, uh, we want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for the art for our show. Follow him on Twitter at Night of Water. That's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. For more of his great artwork and a link tree where you can find his Instagram and stuff like that. And also thanks to our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to help us out by... uh, contributing to the show in exchange uh we offer stuff like bonus podcast episodes that are exclusive to the patreon um that include uh you know stuff like on the edge of relevance uh where we talk about new movies that are um in theaters or being released and if there's any time to like get on board for like on the edge of relevance in particular now's a pretty good time because at the around the time this same week if you want more dune talk uh we'll, yeah. we'll be doing one about the new Denis Villeneuve movie um, that word Adam will go, I guess, even further. It's exclusive Patreon content for more of Adam explaining Dune to Thomas. Um, along with uh, also ones for a night in, uh, Last Night in Soho that will be coming up. Um, and then also uh, maybe Paranormal Activity Next of Kin on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, probably. Why the fuck not? <laughs> We're, we're both very curious about that weird little thing that's apparently existing. And also, um, we'd like to do at least one monthly big special uh, bonus podcast episode. And uh, this time for October, hopefully by the time uh, you know this comes out, uh, within the same week before Halloween, we will have our top 10 horror movie death scenes, uh, which Adam and I both have 10 we're contributing, and uh, we'll be very fascinated to hear each other's choices. 
it's gonna be crazy because I started off with a list of about a hundred and some odd. Uh, so to whittle it down to ten has been an incredible undertaking, and I'm still not there. I'm close. But I'm still not there. Yeah, and we're going to record it sooner rather than later, Adam, so we can get it out there. So it'll be a race yeah. to the finish to like get a everything. a couple fucking days. Yes. So uh, that'll be there. And also, uh, also, we should mention on the Patreon, you get to vote for certain things, like the topic for this particular episode, which was in my patrons. So you get to actually sway the direction of the show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and for more of our great direction that Adam's very excited and optimistic about, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, also, you can submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And if you can't support us on the Patreon for the $1 a month, that's cool. The way you can help us for at least just one one time purchase would be uh, to buy some merchandise over at the ESOT Public Store, where there's a link in the description for that. Uh, but basically, you can buy a T-shirt or a mug or all sorts of other things with our lovely logo on it. That gets a bit of a kickback. So what should they do, Adam? Buy our merch. Buy our merch. You can do it on your fucking phone. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lynch. Really appreciate that that commercial so much. Uh, well, uh, for more of our own individual antics, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at not the Who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at both marianithomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com, where just recently released was uh, my essay uh, called No Sequel, A Look Back at Standalone Slashers of the 1980s, where I talk about basically just uh, the slashes that came out in the wake of Halloween Friday the 13th uh, that are pretty fun that didn't get a huge franchise out of them. Hell yeah, dude. And I had so much fun talking to you about that for prep on it and maybe throwing a couple ideas your way and stuff. I, I, I really, really uh, think it's a great piece. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. You can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And if you're not tired of hearing us jaw about horror movies, you can also find both of us on newer episodes of uh, past guest Rafe Telsh's show, Have Not Seen This, where Thomas has a lovely discussion about Green Room, and I have a uh, yeah, okay discussion about the Night of the Living Dead remake. Yeah, from 1990 specifically, the, the good one. Yeah, 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 the only good one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right, yes, and I listened to that episode earlier today, and it was a very lovely discussion, Adam. I quite enjoyed that episode a lot. And also, if you want to know what Schwanson means... Uh, you need to hear that in the episode. And folks, I didn't even know that origin story. And hearing it, it just opened up so many corridors. Like, it doesn't make sense. Well, of course, that's what it is. <laughs> of mean, course, yes. <laughs> yes. If you want to subscribe to us and hear our own uh, rinky-dink operation further, uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. Uh, and subscribe to us there. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows? Uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed, uh, where we did several episodes before we joined ESO. And if you can't buy that merch or you can't support us on the Patreon, that's all good. Uh, it would just be really helpful if you did this uh, for completely free, which is to rate, review, or share the show around because that gives us more visibility out there in the ether. And some of you have been doing it, and I've been seeing it, and I've been loving it, but I want more to do it. I'm looking at 
uh, Christian Alvarez. <laughs> Just call it one specific person. Yep. Motherfucker. Share it. <laughs> Yes, and uh, by the way, you know what? Uh, before we get into the picking, just really quickly, uh, this will be our last episode before Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. Have a good day, Halloween. Happy Halloween, guys. Thomas, what are you going for as Halloween? Um, Brad Dorf's gorgeous eyebrows. Holy Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I'm what? going as early 2000s fuckboy Fred Durst. Oh, you're doing it all for yeah. the nookie? Oh. Yes, I am. And I'm going to keep rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> that sound effect. Perfect. Uh, well, now, Adam, it's time we finally did our picking for next week. And as we mentioned, yes, we're getting out of the October season. So we're going back to a bit more of a regular episode this time uh, where basically Adam and I each have um, we switch up on the quality for this. But one of us has two good movies. One of us has two bad movies related to whatever the topic is. And we assign numbers between one and ten for each of those. And uh, each week, uh, the other person says a number between 1 and 10. And whatever that number is closest to of the two picks, that gets us our good and our bad feature. Though, keep in mind, there's a special consideration here called the Godfather Rule, where Adam and I each have a single veto in our back pocket to use for one of the choices that we might hear. So, for example, since I have uh, the two bad choices, Adam could pick his number, hear my choice, and say, actually, you know what? I'm going to take the cannoli at that point, which means he uses his veto, can't use have another one until uh, May, uh, when we'll be having our anniversary show. So that's the big thing, is he has one pot- potential thing to do that for, I have the same. So uh, it could be used uh, for next week's episode, which, you know, in honor of uh, a new Marvel movie, is coming out once again, as if we didn't have enough Marvel movies this year, uh, The Eternals is coming out, and uh, that's a huge sprawling cast in that particular movie. But we decided to spotlight one who... Doesn't do a lot of movies, quite frankly, anymore, despite being a massive star, especially like, you know, a decade and a half ago or so. Uh, we're dedicating an episode to Miss Angelina Jolie. I've always been a massive fan of hers. Yeah, it's very interesting given the fact that uh, her origin story uh, comes from someone you loathe. Fucking loathe it. But you know what? She loathes him, too, so it's okay. No, that's true. I think we were all on Angelina's page. It was like, fuck that guy. <laughs> I think we can all mutually say that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, Adam, you have the two good picks. I have the two bad. So, uh, for your two good picks, I'm going to pick number six. All right. At number seven, I have, I think it's a visually stunning sort of, reminds me of like pulp radio shows and old comic books. I have Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Very interesting. I, I, I did not anticipate that at all. Because uh, that's mostly one that I've heard is like a bad choice, honestly. I think it's so fun. It's fun. Is it, you might, you might, if you can't watch Sky Captain and at least smile, then there's something wrong. Like, it's a fun movie. Do you want to take the cannoli? Um, you know, I, I won't, because I have not seen Sky Captain the World tomorrow, so, uh, yeah. I'm fascinated. Oh. Let's, let's go ahead and go with that. All right. At my number one, I have another movie that I really enjoy, because, again, I love the lore and the source material. I understand why people don't like it, but I still think it's probably the best telling of this classic story that's ever been done. I have the Zemeckis Beowulf. That's interesting. Um, I would not have picked that as a good pick. Um, but I went crazy with it. I went nuts with it. I'll give it this much. It is the only watchable one of those motion capture movies that he did. Which isn't saying a lot, <laughs> to be fair. 
when your other options are Polar Express or that Christmas Carol. It's that big. But but Adam, for my two bad choices, pick number okay. one and ten. Oh, fuck. Well, I'll go two. Okay. Well, at number one, I have a movie that was sort of an infamous punching bag when it came out. I think deservedly so because it starred her and another big star of the time. Um, I have The Tourist. Oh, fuck. That's not the one I thought you were going to pick. Oh, no. Oh, God. I've never seen it. Oh, I don't know. Well, well, Adam, Adam, you have that cannoli that you could potentially take. Do you want to take it? You know, I'm going to go no on the same basis that you did because I've never seen it. So, no, I will not take the cannoli. Okay. Well, my alternate choice over on the other side over there at uh, number 10, I had um, another one that was sort of infamous for especially like a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, I've heard at least mixed things about it. I have uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith starring her and her, uh, at the time, a lover and eventual husband and an eventual ex-husband, Brad Pitt. That's the one I thought you were talking about with the first one. <laughs> I have And uh, I, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's... All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and get to then uh, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow, and The Tourist next time. Oh, fuck. Yes, we'll, we'll get into all of that. Next time, uh, but until then, everybody, I think it's time to end the podcast the only way you can with the David Lynch one, so silencio. Chocolate starfish! <laughs> what? It's a fucking limpid skin thing. Oh. <laughs> has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.